You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. From the Journal of Ida Jackson. And it was chaos. So many years gone by, but you never forget a sight like that, the thousands of people, all of them so frightened, pressing against the fences, the soldiers and dogs trying to keep folks calm, the shots fired in the air. And me, not more than eight years old, with my little suitcase, the one my mama had packed for me the night before, bawling the whole time because she knew what she was doing, that she was sending me away forever. The jumps had taken New York, Pittsburgh, D.C., most of the whole country, as far as I recall. There was lots we didn't know, such as what had happened to Europe or France or China, though I'd heard my daddy talking to some of the other men from our street about how the virus was different there. It just flat-out killed everybody, so I'm supposing it was possible that Philadelphia was the last city left with people in it in the whole world at that time. We were an island. When I asked my mom about the war, she explained that the jumps were people like you and me, just sick. I'd been sick myself, so it scared me about out of my skin. When she told me this, I just started crying my eyes out, thinking I would wake up one day and kill her and my daddy and my cousins the way the jumps like to do. She hugged me hard and told me, No, no, Ida, it's different. That's not the same kind of a thing at all. You hush now and stop your crying, which I did. But even so, for a while, it didn't make no sense to me why there was a war on and there were soldiers everywhere of folks had just come down with a sniffle or something in their throat. Justin Cronin is the author of Mary and O'Neill, which won the Penn Hemingway Award and the Stephen Crane Prize, and The Summer Guest. His new novel is The Passage. Thank you for joining me, Justin. Well, thanks for having me. Justin, this is a, a wonderful, immersive epic, and I, I wonder if you would talk about just creating that sense of a whole new world. Um, well, it was sort of my, my goal for the book to write, um, to write the kind of story that people could get lost in for a while, you know, where, where ordinary reality, everything had changed, and uh, you know, uh, at least a little bit, you know, and um, a world transformed by massive events. I've always, the books I've always been most attracted to are those that are stories of, of, sort of private lives, but against a larger historical canvas, you know, people living in interesting times, I guess you could say. Um, and The Passage is a book in which um, the whole world changes. It changes radically. Um, it's, a, it's a story with a thousand-year um, sweep to it, although principally it takes place in both the sort of near future time and then uh, a period of time about 100 years in the future among survivors of a, uh, of a, of a great viral epidemic who believe they may be the last human beings left on the North American continent. And writing a book like this really required a tremendous amount of concentration from me, I think, as much as anything else. I mean, when you when you when the world that you know drops away in a narrative, um, all of a sudden your your characters you have to think about absolutely everything, um, from what they eat what they eat and what they wear and um, to, you know, the most intimate workings of their psychology. Um, and I think the the story was I wanted to create a story where where the reader really just sort of when they when they looked up from the book they were a little startled to see that they were still in the world that they had left behind when they started reading. It it starts in in a near future that's uh, fairly dystopian, 
uh, we've got, um, you know, uh, it, in a future where war has become a, a real theme, uh, pervasive. Yeah, I did, what I did is I just sort of extended a number of things into the future that I saw happening, really, at the moment that I started the book. Uh, I began writing the book in, in uh, 2005. And when I say writing, I mean sort of putting the ideas together. It took me a little while to clear out the clutter from my life so I could devote myself to the story. But, you know, a number of things were going on. I mean, one was, of course, that we were sort of deep into Iraq in a way that seemed that it just kind of had no end point. I mean, it was, I couldn't, there was no way you could imagine ever getting out of it. And our foreign policy seemed to be, at that point, predicated entirely upon sort of endless foreign adventures, military adventures. Uh, Hurricane Katrina had just drowned New Orleans. Um, I live in Texas, and I was part of, a, you know, a, a, about a million people who tried to get out of the city of Houston uh, for Hurricane Rita, sort of the, the forgotten major hurricane, because Katrina is, of course, the one everybody remembers, but Rita was a very, very large hurricane that was headed right towards Houston, and at one point was a Category 5, so I was part of the evacuation, a sort of spontaneous panic, really. It wasn't an orderly evacuation at all, and it failed completely. Everybody got stranded on the highway. Um, and so those things were kind of on my mind. I mean, that was sort of the state of mind I, I was in when I was when I was writing the novel. And the near future uh, of the of the book, which I, you could say is maybe ten years down the road, is one in which a certain amount of civil liberties seem to have been sort of dropped by the wayside. Um, the, the, there's this there's sort of sense of national exhaustion by endless foreign wars and what they have sort of required um, in terms of. Um, national treasure and, and sort of the way people think about their lives. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, it, it, the, the book starts in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a slightly dystopian future. You know, um, that vision of you sitting on the highway in, uh, outside of Houston just really brought back memories to me of a, a panic in the year zero. Just one of the <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great old movie. I mean, actually, uh, great if you go back and look at it. It's actually sort of terrible, but um, I saw that movie pretty recently, mm -hmm. um, maybe you know f five years ago, something like that. Um, and that that made a, I remember that movie making a big impression on me when I was a kid. Yeah, when I was a kid, boy, that just like uh, scarred me. I was waiting for the bombs, <laughs> you know, and and uh, I we were still they were still doing drop drills when I was a kid. So, yeah, and. Uh, that, so that had a mo even more prescient feel to it. Well, I'm definitely a kid of the Cold War. I was born you know, two weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm. and so I absorbed a st you know not just the reality of the Cold War, but a, st a, a sort of steady stream of Cold War narrative. You know, movies and books. Um, the the one of the big strains in speculative fiction at that time. There were two. One was very optimistic. It was the conquest of space. <laughs> and the other one was the very negative, which one was the world's going to end tomorrow in a blinding flash of light. And I, I, you know, I, I grew up on a steady diet of both. You know, uh, one of the uh, books and movies this book uh, brought back to mind was Neville Shoots on the Beach. Yeah. This kind of uh, post-apocalyptic rebuild. And, you know, that strikes me. One of the things about this novel, the, the themes of this novel, is birth and rebirth, both the birth of children, but also the rebirth of people and, and the rebirth of, of nations, of hope. Uh, and, and I have to wonder, were you present when, when your daughter was born? Oh, sure, for both my kids. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, um, uh, the births of my children were great, you know, personal events in my life, but they were also great material, mm. you know? <laughs> and I thanked my wife profusely for, uh, 
for the opportunity to observe. And there are, there are in fact, two births in this book, and mm-hmm. one is one is pretty much a straight-up um, replication of my son's labor, and one is pretty much a straight-up replication of my of my when my daughter was born. So, yeah, I, I used them both. They're very different experiences medically. Now, um, your family is kind of uh, all over this book. And, you know, we read a book like this that's set in, a, in another world and, you know, set in the near future with all these cataclysmic and apocalyptic events. And our tendency is to think that the writer is writing about the future and trying to imagine mm-hmm. the future. But I, I tend to think that writers are really writing about the present they're living in. Well, I think that's that's. I think that's always the case, and I think um, speculative fiction or science fiction um, is always really about the present, you know. And um, I, w- I wanted to write a book that was um, really just kind of about people, in the same way that my other books had been about people. But I wanted to strap them. I wanted to strap these characters to. A sort of runaway train of a plot, you know, and put them in situations of such dire urgency that every decision they made was essentially a life or death decision. Um, the question that I asked each of my characters, because you interrogate them in this way, just in order that you get to know them, was if you are running for your life, what is the one thing you will carry? And I, and that, that that's actually not just a hypothetical question in this book. No, um, no, no. It, it, I think it's maybe a good question to ask of any character when you're writing any kind of novel. Um, but in in my in the passage, it's literally the case. Now, uh, this book has been described often as being about uh, vampires and about the end of the world. But one of the things I I really enjoyed about this book is that all that stuff is really dialed back. I mean, in terms of uh, uh, this is. I think more of a a, a disease novel than mm-hmm. than a, a vampire novel. Well, the, yeah, the vampire material in the book um, solved a problem that I had for the story because I wrote the passage essentially on a dare for my my kid, my nine year old daughter, who mm-hmm. um, who dared me to write a story about a girl who saves the world. That was those were her words, and um, she and I actually spent about three months. Um, I was always running, and she was on her bicycle. We used to do this every afternoon, and for about three months, what we did on those on uh, these run rides, as we called them, was we we worked out a story together, the plot of a story mm-hmm. that became really the, the the backbone of this book. I mean, it was really cooked up by a dad and his and his second third grader. Um, and but so, but her her dare to write a story about the girl who saved the world required that she saved the world from something, and. Um, sort of the 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 pl- a, a vampire plague, or as Twitter now calls it, the vampocalypse. I've seen that on Twitter. I think it's a great word. Um, was you know, in a sense, the kind of MacGuffin. It was the machinery for us to to uh, you know to to accomplish the larger narrative goal of a girl who saves the world. And we came up with this sort of bef- before the modern industrial vampire complex came into being, which... which <laughs> I like that yeah, description. <laughs> yeah, which started... It happened... It basically, in fall 2005, I think the first of the Twilight books came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, it wasn't... I was not the target audience. It took a while to build. My daughter was too young. So all this stuff was was off the radar for us, mm-hmm. um, for for me, certainly. And, and I never really paid all that much attention to it because there's a sense that there's a sort of boomlet in, you know, in in vampire narrative right now, but it's always been a bull market. I mean, if I'd done it 10 years earlier, people would be 
talk, still be talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the thing about the vampire story is that it's so soft, it's plastic. You can really move it around and attach it to other mythologies and use it in lots of different ways. So I'd grown up on my share of vampire stories, so I, I used it, you know, as the as I said, it's sort of the MacGuffin of the book, um, but trying to make it fresh, you know, mm-hmm. making it, as you said, it's a disease narrative. I, I took the, the vampire legend and like every legend, imagined that it was based on some kind of reality and sent a character in, in search of the ancient virus that he believes is the source of um, what has become a, you know, a gothic magical story. Now, one of the things I, I think is very interesting about this novel is it's of very much of two minds. On on one hand, the the plot and the drivers um, are based in science and biology and in plagues, and it's all very down to earth in in that sense. These vampires have, you know, we're we're not talking about. A, a, any kind of soup. You don't really feel that these are supernatural. They're not vampires. sparkly underwear model vampires, no, right? You no, know, no, and, they're and not I, romance. I wanted I wanted to pull the magic out of the story. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. I'm not particularly attracted to magic as a mechanism in stories. Mm-hmm. I, I, in fact, I, I would say I don't like it mm-hmm. um, because I feel like it's a. It sort of opens the door to to sort of cheap narrative theatrics. Mm-hmm. I guess you know. Basically, is once magic's in a story. The writer can get away with anything. There's any number of Deus Ex Machinas that can just be, you know, rolled out when you need them. And I like a, I like a sort of sense of confinement structure in a story, and to to basically make rules, you hmm. know, for the story. And so, um, that's I, I basically wanted to take the take the magic out. But on the other hand, I think there really is a deeply spiritual aspect to this narrative. Oh, that's different from magic. No, yeah, no, yeah, that's exactly. right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I quickly encountered questions of uh, things like religious faith and does God pay attention? And um, very early in the book, and I'd meant to drag my feet a little bit on this. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I personally am not the practitioner of any particular faith. You know. Um, and uh, and yet this character emerged very early, who is a sort of mystic nun, mm-hmm. uh, Lacey Antoinette Cadotto, um, who I love. I think she's probably my favorite character to, in the book in some ways. Certainly, she's my favorite character to write from, and you know, in, using her point of view. Um, and she is either a a bona fide mystic um, or somebody with the worst case of post-traumatic stress disorder you've ever seen, you know? And, that the re- and I, wanted to, I wanted the reader to get to pick, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a, I feel like that's a job that the reader can do if they, if they want to do it. They get to decide if in the story um, there exists, a, a, operating in the background, a divine and attentive intelligence, um, or if it is a story of human beings in an awful circumstance making, doing the best they can. Well, there's certainly some divine construction in here when you have a a number 12, which is, of course, the number of the apostles plays an important part. You know, it strikes me. Have you um, received much... uh, coverage from the, the Christian press in terms of this novel? Not so much. And I was kind of amazed that that hasn't happened. Uh, I'm kind of waiting for that, as I'm also waiting for somebody to write a dissertation on it. Um, but uh, no, that hasn't happened so much. And I think it's kind of it's sort of a low-hanging fruit, you know? And uh, because, of course, the, traffic, the book traffics in plenty of Christian iconography of various kinds. Mm-hmm. And um, operating in the background... Um, 
is is the story of Noah, which is invoked many, many times. I mean, one of the earliest things in the Old Testament that God decided to do was start over. Mm. And um, and I've always found that very sort of fascinating and disturbing story. <laughs> um, you know, when you put it that way in this novel, this is the first time I'd ever thought of the flood as an apocalypse to yeah. tell the truth. And, and it's a really fascinating, yeah, like you say, it's kind of scary. And it <laughs> happened like 10 minutes after he made everything. You yeah. know, it's sort of, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't wait, you know. <laughs> and uh, he's very disappointed. You know, he's, he's uh, um, mankind has grown wicked in its ways, but you, Noah, are a man righteous in your generation. That's the language. And so I'll save you, you know, and we'll start over using you. Um it's very, it's ice cold, baby. It's and um, it's a fascinating story because the world is destroyed. It's, it's already already been destroyed, you know. <laughs> if you look at it as a historical document, and I've been fascinated by it since I was a kid, sent out to Sunday school, and uh, so I, you know, I invoked it early on. The the scientific, the experiment that is used, uh, the the name of the experiment that, that creates and then and then reengineers the virus is called Project Noah. In the novel, that's actually a reference to the fact that Noah is said to have lived 950 years, which is very interesting. All those Old Testament characters all lived, you know, about a millennium, according to the, the, sort of the way things were dated back then, uh, as if long lifespan was in some ways a useful human characteristic um, at the time, which I suppose it would have been. So, um, so all these things kind of combined in my mind. And I, yes, I'm waiting to hear. I, I'm waiting to hear. So far, not so much. Um. One of the things I, I, I like about this book is is the way you use s- scope. Um, you'll show us bits and we'll see a small bit of life and hints of what's outside, and you'll give mm-hmm. us a really detailed picture of a of a small portion, and use that to suggest both that the out at the edges of this we don't know know what there is, but there might mm-hmm. be something very interesting. Um, I think that's really um, a skill that I learned cutting my teeth as a short story writer, mm. um, which is a literary form based almost entirely upon omission and suggestion, right? <laughs> I mean, of course, Very you know, what you include, everything in a short story, because I've been a creative writing teacher for years, and I always tell my students that writing a good short story is the hardest thing in the world because everything has to be related to everything else. And um, it's an incredibly dense literary form. But you write it by basically pulling stuff out until you have left only what matters. Um, and so you learn a lot about suggestion, right? You learn a lot about um, about uh, essentially the kind of, I think of it as a fractal, you know, where you look at a small shape and it actually con- you know, it contains and suggests both smaller and larger shapes um, sort of almost infinitely. And uh, so I think that's kind of the the the, the sc- the, the, the habit, I was going to call it a skill or the practice, but I think it's really more a habit that I bring to to writing any particular scene. I'm trying to, I'm always trying to show a lot more than is actually there. And I really wanted to write a big canvas story. I really wanted to write a story about the fate of humanity, you know, which, you know, it was, it was again, it was a dare from my kids, so why not, you know? And I was free to fail at it if I wanted to. One of the best things about being a writer is if you're willing to accept failure as an outcome, the stakes are zero. You know, you can do whatever you want. You have no boss. Um, you, you can't fire yourself. So, <laughs> Well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, one of the things that, that uh, it makes this novel uh, so compelling are the way you deal with characters at, at a variety of levels. We have the characters who kind of stretch across. You know, you have uh, more, char- more different size character arcs 
in mm-hmm. this novel yeah. than I think I've ever read in a single novel. I mean, there's right some on, I mean, I say right on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the th- I, one effect I love that you do are like these little frescoes where we'll just see somebody for a few pages mm-hmm. and get right. really deeply into them. But it's just like a it's like a part of a wall carving in a temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've I've never met a minor character I didn't love. I have to say <laughs> I can this. Tell. Yeah, no, I I really feel like I don't want any luggage handlers in the story. You know, characters <laughs> that are just there to carry the bags of the plot. Because um, you know them when you see them, and I think the reader feels the artifice of that moment. And um, I wanted to give any character who had a, any kind of role in the story the opportunity to have you know their humanity light up in some ways. And you, you, you said they're kind of like little mini frescoes almost, and that's true. I mean, I'm thinking of a... I just got a, a message from a friend of mine who came to a moment in the story where a character dies. And uh, I won't say who, but preceding that, she's always been a sort of a shadowy figure in the mm-hmm. story. She's a, you know, she's kind of operating, not quite in the background, but you've never really looked her like in the eye for any long period of time. And what you find out just before she dies is like, is, is her, the whole, her whole inner life, right? You know, what she really is. And she's a character with a sort of hard military carapace, but on the inside, she's actually um, quite a sort of soft um, and romantic and lonely woman. And you get this in the text just before the worst happens so that her death is not just you know, me arbitrarily shoving a character to the side. I wanted, I wanted her to have her moment of, of humanity before I took it away. In other words, I felt like I had to earn it. Mm. And, uh, that, and I feel that's really true. And when I was writing this book, I kept coming to new characters where I felt like, Given that what was going to happen in this book, and it, you know, it's a it's a book with a pretty high body count, to be honest. Um, <laughs> most of the United States. Yeah, most of the continental United States. I felt like in each case, I had to earn it. Mm. I had to earn it. Um, you know, the other thing that that uh, I really liked uh, about the way the character arcs work in this book is that um, a- as we get to they. The way you deal with plot, we don't really, as we read this book, we don't think about plot. You use the characters so that everything becomes, it's almost that there's no plot, all characters, but all story. Right. So so there's this kind of uh, um, immersion, and that's what makes us, we talked about this earlier, a novel that you kind of get lost in. There's an immersion in story. So you have a very interesting sense of, of story. Well, plot is, you know, plot is an abstraction. It's a series of events with a range of causal relationships between the events. I mean, it's, and, and, uh, and that's not very interesting. Mm. You know, like you describe any plot on the abstract, they all sound kind of stupid mm-hmm. um, or lifeless. At the very least, a kind, there's a kind of inertness to them. Where story is, is where that plot and character are inextricably, inextricably bound together. The events of the story are the ones that uh, could only befall these particular people at these this particular moment, and they are they are the drivers of the action. Um, it's a it's, it's not a series of events; it's a series of human interactions with circumstances. And when I say human, I mean the interactions of personality mm-hmm. with circumstances. And um, I think that uh, you know a lot of really commercial fiction kind of puts that aside on behalf of just the plot, which I'm not really taken by, to be honest. I, I, I find mere p- plot all by itself is sort of dull, mm. right, to me. Not even sort of dull. It is dull. Um, whereas story is, you know, 
I, you know, I learned about that from Dickens. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, he wrote a great story. Mm-hmm. His plots, I can't, I can't, you know, I, I don't even remember them. Like, I, but I remember the stories. You know, and that interaction between character and event is what captivates people. I think that's what readers really want. Oh, Dickens does apocalypse. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Dickens, Tolstoy, you know, those guys. Um, it, you know, Melville. It wasn't just anybody who was going to go chase the white whale, right? Mm, I mean, no. you know, <laughs> and, and if it was, it would just be a story about a fish. Yeah. Actually, a seaborn mammal. But, um, seaborn mammal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talk about uh, creating the, these vampires because... Uh, one of the things you do now, this is part of a trilogy, as I understand it. Yeah, uh, a trilogy is a word that I'm a little cautious about because it always suggests a fake book in between two real books. Mm-hmm. You know, in most trilogies, the structure is one where there's a, the first book and the third book are actual books, and the third book is just kind of a bridge between yeah. the two. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to fall into that trap. I wanted the, each of the books to have a kind of strong, freestanding nature. So, but conventionally. A trilogy. Yes, yes. there's yeah. going to be three books. That there's going to be three books. World. That's right. Yeah, three stories at least. And uh, yeah. now, one of the things I think you do really effectively in this, in terms of of that, is um, suggest the uh, you really just skirt the edges of what these um, the infected human beings are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really really interesting. I have to ask, how much do you know about them now? Um, how much do you know about what they'll become in the rest of the story. Oh, I know everything. Okay. I mean, I am the story's local god. And um, <laughs> I know the whole of creation and, and um, of my creation and well, hopefully forward and backward in time. Well, that guy who, uh, who flooded the earth. Yeah. <laughs> not much, um, though. <laughs> not too much. I'm sort of the same guy. Um, no, I mean, as a writer, you need, to, you need to take responsibility for your creation in that way. So I've known from very early on the whole story and you know, what becomes of everybody, mm. you know, and uh, I am, you know, I'm the master of that. The The story along the way makes a lot of demands that surprise me and that I need to accommodate, of course, but I, I operate from a pretty solid plan when I write a novel. It makes it, it's the only way you could kind of integrate all the elements. You know, if you know what needs to be in the story, you put it in there, and if you don't know, you you put in the wrong thing and then you mm-hmm. go down a blind alley and your book falls over dead, you know? <laughs> so I'm very much, I'm very much a planner. Um, the, the virals of the book, the infected human beings are of course characters who have the traits, the biological traits that became the, the, the legend of the vampire, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I wanted to backtrack all of them, especially those that were the most, um, magical and give them, um, a plausible biological or physical basis. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, you know, people defending themselves against vampires with a cross. Well, that's no matter how you construe it, that's a certain kind of magic. Um, but in a pre-industrial society or a post-industrial society, as the, my characters end up living, the the best weapon that you have, if you have to shoot something in the thymus, which is what you have to do for these creatures, um, is a crossbow, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, my char- and you wouldn't call it a crossbow because that's two syllables. You would call it your cross. So my characters do indeed defend themselves against vampires with crosses. But, you know, but it makes plausible sense that there's no magic involved. Um, and you have a great, uh, I, I love your... Uh, your mirror, uh, yeah, that's, I, that, was, that was really that was rocking. <laughs> that was my that was my favorite detail because it's one I feel in my own life at age forty seven is the is the kind of looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, oh my god, what has happened to me, right? Which is it, what happens in the 
it's a, it's actually the opposite. It's an inversion of the, the you know the, the vampire legend and and in the Gothic legend, the vampire cannot be seen in a mirror. As far as I know, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but if if you if if the vampire viral or jump or flyers are called in my book, is it, you know were they to look in a mirror and experience a moment of sort of melancholy recognition of their transformation, even a flicker of memory of what they used to be, they're just middle aged people. <laughs> at, at their heart, you know, or also sick people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people who are who are really, really ill will will look at themselves in the mirror and will feel that loss very keenly. So it has an analog in you know in human experience in human psychology. You know, um, one of the things that that's uh, interesting about this kind of fiction is the way that. Um, the world is winnowed down and stripped away, and I really love the experience of that in the novel. It happens to the the critters themselves um, are, are less than they were before in some ways. Oh, they're naked too, yeah. and the first things they do. One of yeah. the signs of infection is spontaneous disrobing, right? <laughs> well, it's the putting away of of surface things, mm-hmm. you know, becoming more essential, right? And um, put the putting away of the civilized world. And, and you put away the whole civilized world right. as well. And I think I, I love just seeing the world whittled down to almost nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's it was it was sort of the project of the story was to put my characters in a situation where um, there were no superficial distractions. I mean, <laughs> they, well, I mean, it, it, I really wanted to see what human beings were like in a in a in a circumstance in which. Um, they can't be distracted by little things anymore because there aren't even any little things. You know, all the questions are big ones. All the decisions are major decisions with permanent implications. Um, and you know, boil away the the baloney, you know, <laughs> so that what you have, every character cannot help but be themselves in some ways and sort of be their true selves on a sort of daily basis. And that was, for me, a really kind of an exhilarating experience as a writer to put characters in a circumstance like that. Um, so I didn't, the kind of work that I'd done as a writer before was always a sort of slow sort of peeling away of detail after detail after detail to try to get at who they were. In this case, my characters can't help but be themselves full time, you know, in a sort of 24-7 way because of the world in which they live. Well, this, uh, this sort of novel, too, also um, when you're sitting around and you look up and come out of it for, for a moment, you go, God, you know, we have a pretty good. Right. <laughs> well, I think that's really one of the... Um, one of the uh, reasons that, for lack of a better term, post-apocalyptic fiction uh, in both film and, and in novels it continues because there is a, an interesting catharsis that takes place when you imagine the end of everything and then look up and it's still here. You know, I think it's very reassuring. And I know that as a kid, when I was reading, you know, novels about nuclear catastrophe and viruses wiping out of the world... Out of the anxiety that I experienced, that it would in, that that indeed was a possibility, you know, um, when I when I stopped reading the book and looked up, and the world was still here, I I, I felt a, I felt a little better, you know, <laughs> and and I, I think that's one of the purposes of literature to give your it's the same purpose as roller coasters, you know, it's a place to, to sort of deposit your anxieties, and then um, when it's all over, feel as if you've not chased them away, but um, put them aside for a while. In a in a crafting a, a novel like this, um, one of the things that sh- that you're able to do that we do um, is use a lot of uh, 
really pretty sophisticated narrative techniques. And, and what interests me is that even in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm -hmm. when you look back at it, it uses a lot of some of those techniques that seem somewhat postmodern or, you know, where you have um, your reading was from one journal. We have journals. We have yeah. all this other kind of material. That's a great storytelling tradition, and I think it's very cool, you know, and I really wanted to. Uh, include that in the book. Interestingly, at the, when I did it for the first time, I wasn't thinking about the Bram Stoker, but later on realized that that's what that was that was what had sort of whispered it in my ear, so that I did it. Um, I think every book is a book about books. If it if it mm -hmm. you know if, it has to sort of acknowledge you have to sort of acknowledge that reality at some point in your life. And uh, I just decided to do it really overtly um, in this in this novel. My characters are constantly reading books, finding books. Um, in a world that has been essentially depopulated and rendered mostly uninhabitable, um, the debris of the old world that would maintain its intelligil intelligibility the longest would, of course, be books. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you were 100 years past a post-industrial society, you wouldn't look at a washing machine and know what the hell it was. But um, you could pick up a novel and see what the world had been in some ways in its pages. And my characters are constantly doing that. So I also I wrote newspaper articles. You get a glimpse of what's going on in the world when, when disaster falls through mm -hmm. um, newspaper articles. I went and I actually sort of studied the rhetorical devices um, that had been applied uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, mm. uh, mm -hmm. which was, you know, basically I went and looked at the New York Times for several days following 9-11. How do you report on a story of kind of overwhelming chaos? You don't really know what the story is, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they didn't really know. I mean, there's like, yeah, planes flew into buildings, but what does it mean? Where did it come from? You know, the response was chaotic. And um, and the whole thing was in, tra in charge by this sort of, you know, it was real, I mean, everything was in sort of a heightened emotional state. And mm -hmm. I wanted to go see how the Times, the newspaper of record, had handled it. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing is I'm always disappointed by um, the way um, the news tends to be rendered in fiction and certainly on television and in movies. You know, mm -hmm. reporters never sound like real reporters. Newspaper articles never sound like real <laughs> newspaper articles. And I worked briefly in the news. So um, I wanted to be... Again, I wanted to get it get it right, and I and writing those sorts of writing a newspaper article about the end of the world is is it was an oddly joyful experience. I have to say, <laughs> um, I don't I can't say why, but I felt just some 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 deep inner pleasure at doing it. Um, be, and I think for the same reason, because when it was all over, I knew it was fiction, you know. But this is what it might actually sound like. In this novel, we talked a bit earlier about some of the uh, spiritual aspects of it. Um, and, and there's one of the things that you do very effectively is, is use dreams. And I wonder if you talk about the way you use dreams. And uh, I'm assuming that this is going to play a, a bigger increasing role as as the story unfolds in, in the next two books. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, and I've always, I've always in, in some ways included in a guarded way, in a cautious way, included dreams in what I write because I think dreams are really part of our experience. You know, I, I, I know it's, you have to be very cautious about using dreams in a novel because um, the only thing more boring than somebody telling you stories about their pets is people <laughs> telling you stories about their dreams, right? And um, unless they're, you know, your spouse and like you're a character in it, and you know, you get my wife and I are constantly swapping dream narratives and having the other person interpret it. 
um, for us. Be that as it may, um, writers are, of course, people who have very active imaginations, and the imagination is uh, composed largely of the unconscious mind. And so my dream life is very hectic and interesting, and it always has been. I was a champion sleepwalker as a kid. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I wander all over the place. My kids are too, oh. interestingly. you know, oh. and, it's, and it's hilarious when your kid stumbles down the stairs and says something incomprehensible, and you and your wife sitting there watching TV, and you're like, I think they're asleep. You know <laughs> they are. And, um, and in fact, most people are. I mean, actually, most a lot of kids sleepwalk. I mean, you and, and adolescent males tend to sleepwalk a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I'm also I'm a writer on a daily basis, and so I have to have um, some technique um, and of of kind of getting in touch with my unconscious mind, where a lot of the interesting thinking takes place. And in my case, that's running. I hypnotize myself by running pretty mm-hmm. much every day. Um, and I think writers, all writers, have some form of auto hypnosis, um, and I think most artists do, where they can get a little bit closer to that material in their minds that makes interesting connections, essentially, in the way that dreams are composed of interesting connections. Um, so I, I live in that world. You know, I'm aware of this as part of my daily experience, and it r- arose quite naturally in the novel. Every book itself is – a novel is itself a kind of dream. You know, you're kind of hoping the reader has your, have your, has your dream with you, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, my characters are people who experience um, the world – the way real people do. So that would include, I think, you know, a dream life in which things come to them and things occur to them and messages reach them. Uh, and uh, the book's full of this stuff. I was, I, I'm always cautious about it. I don't want it to overwhelm the story because like magic, it can become a kind of, kind of free for all. Like, mm-hmm. oh, don't know what to do next. I think I'll just have another dream sequence. Um, <laughs> but my, But every horror novel, which this is also, I mean, it's one of the categories in which this book could 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 be found is is a kind of nightmare mm-hmm. you know and so um metaphorically it seemed apt to me to have um provocative dreaming going on in the story you just referred to this as a horror novel and i think that's pretty interesting because um that's actually not the term I, but that's a that's a term that's sort of been applied to mm-hmm. it and that's and fair enough you know i'm not going to say that's not true I tend to to I I would tend to say it's more of an adventure. It doesn't. Right. It's not. It's not a fear-inducing novel, other than the the prospect of some of the the disease breaking loose, which seems like that we're completely stupid and willing to do that kind of stuff. I'm not quite sure what the term horror novel actually means or includes. I mean, it means it has something scary in it. Um, I think that I think that the passage is a horror novel in the sense that it's participating in um, a very American literary pedigree, which is. Uh, I mean, all of our our original literature in this country, mm-hmm. and I mean the literature of, of European Americans, Europeans in America, um, begins with um, ghost stories. Mm-hmm. You know, Washington Irving, Poe, Hawthorne, our original our original writers of an imaginative literature, um, were all writing about encounters with wildness and strangeness, which was the the sort of baseline experience of being a a European. Um, coming to the new world. Mm-hmm. And so we are, as American writers, we're all kind of wrapped up in the ghost story, I think. Mm-hmm. And and I definitely saw myself as, as, as being a participant in that. You know, that's, that's, that, that's very interesting because I think what's, to me, what's interesting is that for so long, um, after the, the classics of, you know, Poe and Hawthorne, uh, 
any kind of fiction that had any kind of genre element was mm-hmm. was dismissed mm-hmm. as being you know so, somehow substandard and subliterary. But in the past few years, um, we've come we've kind of I think collectively and literarily changed our mind. And I found it really interesting when I saw uh, a review of this book that said, uh, you know, in the tradition of classics like Stephen King's The Stand. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, God, when The Stand came out, nobody was calling it a classic. Right, they were yeah. just calling it a doorstop. Well, a classic is a book that's been read for 20 or 30 years, uh-huh. right? I mean, that's what it, it's a question of what lasts, I yeah. think, ultimately. I mean, Dickens was... Dickens was 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 writing episodic television, right? uh-huh. you know. Um, <laughs> That's true. And, but if it hangs around long enough, people begin to think of it as something that has enduring cultural value. Um, and I would say the stand absolutely passes that that test. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was I think it was written in seventy seven or seventy eight. I don't remember the date exactly, but um, so thirty five years later, you know, it's it's. It, it, you know, people read the book, and that's that's a that's a very healthy longevity for a book, and bodes very well for its continued longevity. Well, I think what what uh, happens in books like yours is that um, because these are are stories that use an imaginative backdrop to examine human characteristics, that you can talk about things. Um, in our everyday lives in a manner that gets them way, way out in the open mm-hmm. um, that you couldn't otherwise talk about. I mean, you, uh, you can talk about things, and you do talk about things in, in the passage in a manner um, just at the, the, as you were referring to uh, earlier, the kind of decisions we have to make every day. I mean, in a sense, we are all making life and death decisions. Where they're right. kind of cosseted and protected. But still, um, in a book like this, you can strip away everything, right. and and you have the 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 underneath. And do, and don't we all kind of want to? I mean, that's I think that was sort of the sensibility that was lurking at the back of this. Is you know, you can live your life and take your kids to school and go pick out a car to buy and get the guy to come fix a washing machine and what you know, you do all that stuff a day in and day out and. Don't you kind of want that stuff to, to go away, <laughs> and uh, so you can find out what you really and who you really are, and what you actually care about? Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the other sort of attractive elements of stories like this. Is in some ways, the world with its bright, busy, sparkly surface is exhausting to us, and um, you know, I think all of us, many of us, some of us, long to with more urgency probe larger questions of ourself and our place in the cosmos. Um, and this, the novel is a kind of enactment of that curiosity. And, and if it happens in Santa Cruz, we've got a, if the zombie invasion, the vampire invasion yeah. happens in Santa Cruz, we're well set because you have Highway 1 to the south, Highway 17 to the north, block them both off, and no, those those bad guys. You're highly defensible. Yes, yeah. be ready. Be, yes, you, you guys are in good shape for the for the vampocalypse. Yes, um, this is also a novel where family relations and community relations come right to the surface. They're yeah. they're urgent. Yeah, I mean, there's it's uh, first of all, it's it's the backbone relationship in the story is a father daughter relationship um, between this little girl Amy, the girl who saves the world, and then the FBI agent. Who becomes her surrogate father? He's mm-hmm. a man who's lost a child, and he has you know kind of a hole in his life that's the precise size of this little girl who comes into his life, and he becomes her you know her champion. Um, 
But then, of course, there's also um, it's also a story about a community of, of survivors um, who have survived essentially because they're living in a kibbutz. I mean, that's they, they've sort of organized themselves around um, a domestic structure and because they're descendants of a group of children who were brought there with a few adult minders, um, you know, a hundred years ago, survivors from the last city to fall, Philadelphia, and they're. Their governmental structure is called the household, um, and it's all essentially modeled on um, domestic relationships and domestic how labor is apportioned in a domestic environment. Um, and uh, that's really why they've survived. I mean, is that they 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 relied on what is ultimately an extremely durable social matrix um, to build a community and maintain a community. You know, I love this idea of the kibbutz. Uh, did you did you study those kind of uh, societies to to create this, or did this just kind of weave this? Uh, there's a a nice uh, faux document that kind of lays out the the principles of, right. of your of your uh, uh, post apocalyptic society. Did did you just like sit down and whip that out? Pretty there? much. Yeah. I mean, I must confess, there was not any kind of formal scholarship that went into this. It was just what my intuition told me mm-hmm. and I wanted to have I wanted a, to, a community that was a, basically a family mm-hmm. um, it seemed to me I think intrinsically a, a very durable way of doing things at, at bottom I had to explain to myself how they could still be functioning in mm-hmm. 100 years how, what, what, what would actually make it work and that was the answer that emerged very naturally to me and when I look at the founding document which is called the document of one law um, it sounds pretty much like the rules of my household, right? <laughs> when I think yeah. about it, you know, because uh-huh. everything's, everything's based on the idea of the equal share. Mm-hmm. It's very parental, mm-hmm. right? It's what parents tell their kids, <laughs> right? Um, and the penalties for transgressing um, are, are, you know, there's like three things you can do wrong, and if you do them, you are subject to the penalty of putting without the walls. And it sounds exactly <laughs> like the kind of thing I tell my kids, right? Um, it has this sort of grand theatrical, um, you know, and utter catastrophe will ensue if you do that, young man, right? <laughs> so um, I think it's probably just my household writ, you know, writ large, and I and I gravitated towards it quite naturally, and. Um, had a had a really good time structuring that. I confess, it was really a pleasure to write it. Um, you know, in, in this this uh, society, uh, we we get a, a lot of really interesting uh, looks at technology. And one of the things, have you been con- con- after the Christian to expect to hear from the NRA? I haven't heard from the NRA. Um, I did have to learn a lot about guns to write this book. I confess, I was not somebody who had any experience with um, with firearms. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I shot a rifle a couple times as a kid. That's about it. Um, so I did indeed have to. I live in Texas, so if you want to learn about guns, <laughs> boy, it doesn't. It takes one phone call and, and a twenty-minute drive, and you're out on the range with some guy who's going to show you how to shoot absolutely everything. So I did have my own baptism by fire. Um, for the second volume of the book, I had to learn about sniper rifles, by which I mean like you know hunting rifles with a you know effective at two, three hundred yards. And um, so I, I asked my dentist if he could show me because he's, he's a big hunter, <laughs> right? And a uh, great guy. And, yeah, we went out on the range. And um, it was interesting. You know, um, I, it was, it was, it's fun to learn new things. Most of the research you do is not quite so tactile. Mm-hmm. And so when you do get the chance to do it, it's, it's, um, you come away, you know, in some way enriched and knowing more about the world. Well, it, what's interesting, too, is kind of 
what survives out Got of it. technology. Guns, books, yeah. and canned food. <laughs> Guns, books, and canned food. Now, the, the canned food thing, that's actually true. They have pulled up cans from sunken ships that you could still eat. Okay, canned food lasts a really long time. If the vacuum is maintained, right, <laughs> it's out there for a long time. Yes, guns survive. The world is full of guns. I, you know, there's a, it's a plot point in the book that that uh, my characters come up, basically stumble across a very well preserved cache of military weapons, and they've been living using basically uh, knives and crossbows for a long time. So all of a sudden, they have the sort of the arsenal of a small army at mm. their um, at their disposal. Um, but yeah, again, and books. You know, that's the, those are, those are kind of the three things um, that remain of the old world in the story. You, you say you knew the whole structure, right? Um, how much of the of the prose? I mean, the the pro. One of the things that makes this novel really wonderful is the kind of you write in a, uh, a, a very detailed kind of prose uh, style. Um, could you talk about creating that pro style and how do you think it's going to change to as the story changes? No, I think you write how you write. Mm. You know, it's kind of like your fingerprint. When I started this book, I wondered if I would sound different on the page because I was embarking on a project that was very different both in scope and content. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I ended up sounding exactly like me, right? <laughs> you know, sort of unfailingly like myself. And... Um, Despite the differences, it was still obviously me, right, doing the writing, and uh, and so I think going forward, um, I'm just going to write. The, I'm going to write how I write. It's it's why I write mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense. I mean, the the I'm a very bad careerist. You know, I'm, I think I think that if I, I could hardly say that's the case. Well, I mean, I've been very lucky. I've done well, but the truth is, I've never planned anything. Mm. And you know, I became a writer because I wasn't good at other things and. It just sort of all worked out. Mm-hmm. And it worked out, I, I think, just by doing what I felt like I'd do well and what gave me pleasure to do, which was to write the kinds of sentences that I write and write a certain number of them every day. And so my strategies for writing the next books are about the same. I'm using somewhat different narrative models for the other books as a way of keeping things interesting both to me and to the reader. I don't want the story to just sort of march dutifully ahead. And the first book, I imagined it essentially as a road novel. It's the mm-hmm. story of a journey across a landscape where things happen to characters, right? Where they move through the landscape and that generates the plot. Classic right? American novel is a road novel. And, and this is, you know, that's that's an interesting observation in, yeah. in much the same way that Panic in the Year Zero is a, right. road, is a sure. road story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to kind of look. It's, it's very helpful to look at your story and say, okay, at bottom, what if I had to say that this was one kind of story, what would it be? Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. often it's not the one that's most obviously apparent. Um, and the first book was was to me a road story, uh, very much part of the tradition of writing about the West as mm-hmm. well as characters moving through that landscape. Mm-hmm. And my characters are people who are experiencing the West as if it had never been experienced before, rather like you know the first European mm-hmm. settlers on the continent. So, um, Well, you have a lot of fun with frontier justice in this. I, I love the, the way that's worked out. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I was really conscious. The more, the more I got into the story, the more I realized I was working not just in post-apocalyptic tropes and horror tropes, but really in tropes of the, about the West. And so mm-hmm. the, the encounter with um, the, the sort of the, the immense physical purity, geological nakedness of the West and its huge landscape, and as well as how every human community existing in isolation in that, um, in that setting becomes a kind of frontier town, mm-hmm. right? Um, the second novel um, is not going to be a road novel. It's going to be a spy novel. 
Right. Not that's not something that would be immediately apparent to the people reading it, but those are, that is sort of the underlying <laughs> substructure. Right? Well, that sounds exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm rocking. And that I love good. and I love spy fiction. Really well made spy fiction. I think is just very very intriguing. And a spy fiction is basically generated by moments in which a character is trying to uh, sneak past a guard. And that's sort of the, the basis of it, right? It's like I got to sneak past this person, and I've got the 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 thing that I'm not supposed to have, right? You know, I've got the the secrets, I've got the the microfilm, whatever. And the idea of trying to sneak past something and infiltrate infiltration is is what this would be properly termed. And 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 so I'm I'm, I'm writing a, a a novel of infiltration mm-hmm. uh, as the first one was a road novel. The third one I won't take because I'll kind of give it all away, but. Um, but I think it's very helpful to look at what you're writing. I was talking to a writer friend of mine last night, so I was saying, like, here's some basic things you can do, you know, when you're writing a novel mm-hmm. that'll just give you a strong sense of direction. And one is really making a decision what kind of story it is. And don't forget that. It'll be other things, too. But remember the one. You know, uh, uh, as, as a piece of uh, – one of the things that interests me about this is that uh, the way – and I, I'm sure you must have encountered this – is the way it's marketed because – in, in one sense, this is a, a straightforward piece of genre fiction, mm-hmm. uh, but it sure doesn't look like it. No. I mean, I, th- I think marketing the book has been a challenge. And what happens to a book in the marketplace is, of course, not something that I directly concern myself with because I have no control over it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, you know I, I, can, I write the book and I spend, you know, two or three years alone in the room with it. And then it goes out into you know, the marketplace mm. right, where other things happen. And one of the things that happen is books are categorized. Mm. Right. That's the, the, the bookstores are organized by category. Um, readers organize themselves by category. Sure. Um, and I wanted to write a book that was a little bit subversive mm-hmm. to that. Um, I was in Sui the genres. Right. I, well, and also um, also in a lot of categories simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so that the, somebody who loves um a, you know, a post-apocalyptic novel, as I did as a young man, like I, I couldn't read enough of these kinds of things. That they they would go find that book on that shelf, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who wanted to read um, an adventure story, right? somebody who wanted to read you know a sort of beach novel, which they, you know people are also you know the book was released in the summertime for a reason. It's mm-hmm. a big entertainment, mm-hmm. right? But then I think there's also lots of serious stuff running in it, and it's not as it's not a sort of empty page turner at all. And no, no. it's based on, you know, it's all about his characters and the relationships between people. And I feel like it has a lot of ideas underneath it. Um, there for the taking if you want. So I, I wanted to make it available to lots of different kinds of readers simultaneously. In some cases, that means it's shelved in a lot of places in the store. In some cases, it means they have to put it on its own shelf, you know. And I, that's been interesting to watch mm-hmm. because if I had a sort of philosophical project as an artist writing this book, it was to subvert the idea of category. Uh, I think as a writer, just on a writing level, I think you've done a fine job because you have, um, and this is, gets back to what I was talking about before, and I think one of the themes in the novel that you dial back a lot of the elements that might otherwise put it into genre fiction, but on the other hand, any in the marketplace, genre fiction readers are willing to go where the books are. Right. Whereas uh, readers who um, don't like genre fiction won't go to the genre fiction shelf. So they'll just say, right. Star Trek novels, I stay away from that. Right, yeah, they view it as radioactive, yeah. you know, right? Well, the genre novels are um, for lovers of the genre, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And 
at its at genre, at genre at its worst, you know, at its most wooden, of course, is just a repetition. You know, it's formula, right? Mm-hmm. It's just it's a certain kinds of characters doing the same kinds of things over and over again, which is fine if that's what you like. Mm-hmm. For those that like that sort of thing, that will be the sort of thing they'll like, right? Right. Um, and uh, which is fine. You know, I like um, Brussels sprouts. My wife can't even be in the room with them. You mm-hmm. know, we all have our tastes and. And our taste for something that happens again and again, repeated, essentially, is um, just kind of part of the, the human, you know, experience of literature and art. Um, but I did not want to write a book that that did that. Although I wanted it also to be available to that reader, mm-hmm. which was kind of which was which was kind of complicated thing to hold in my head, um, so that it would be, you know, the the science fiction reader, for instance, and that's a very very challenging group of readers to please they are oh. the ones they are the most determined to decide for themselves and you know which i think it's great that mm-hmm. they are that way um I, I i sent the book to them like with the most anxiety to be honest <laughs> that, because i know that boy you know they are they are they are they are highly opinionated readers mm-hmm. um i wanted the book to be something that they could read but it would not somebody who said oh I, somebody who says i never read science fiction would not be put put off they would not be pushed away from the novel no, I think it's open to anybody who's looking for a good story, I and mean, that gets back to your sense of story in this book, that it's uh, a very holistic and synth- synthetic. Mm-hmm. You, it's everything stirred together. You've, you've created uh, a, a work where all the threads are so finely intertwined, it's not really possible or worth the, anybody's while to, to pull them apart. Yeah, what's interesting is immersed. I've yeah, I've seen some a lot of reviews, a lot of blogs, a lot of a lot of comments on the book. You know, when I published my last novel, two thousand four, there wasn't this huge volume of internet chatter about a book. Mm-hmm. You know, essentially, you did the same things you'd always done before, which is you published the book and you waited to hear from the reviews, mm-hmm. right? But now, between Twitter and Facebook and library thing and Goodreads and all those stuff, you can hear an awful lot from readers. Even well before the book is is actually published, I mm-hmm. mean, you know, people get a hold of um, not you know official critics or reviewers, but just ordinary people who are participating in one program or another to get advanced readers copies. You can start hearing from them very, very early. And well, there were ten thousand advanced reader copies published. That's more than many authors get of their yeah. book. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the house was really behind it. I got to say, I mean, that that was the single most significant thing they did was to make an awful lot of um, of AREs to get them out into the world. Mm-hmm. So that people could see it for themselves, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, that's ultimately the, the, the effective marketing. The, the most effective marketing that a book can do is is be a good book, I right? Mean, right? You know, yeah. if people like it, then it'll be fine. I mm-hmm. mean, I get asked a lot by by people, you know, what do you need to do to get published? And I always say the same thing: it's like really write a book people would want to read. Yeah, you know, um, and not just you, and not just your wife, and not just your mother, but somebody you don't know at all. Um, and they did. They set this book out to be read by a lot of people and the words that came what I what came back to me and continues to come back to me is very you know is is, is very encouraging and you know nice to see but actually I remember where we, I was going with this there was there there was a there are th- people will propagate theories about what could be removed from the book right mm-hmm. because it's very long I think there's a natural tendency amongst readers to say okay it's really really long what could come out and 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 some people will say, you know, you could pull out this chapter, you could pull out that chapter. Maybe they're right, maybe they're not. But most people say you couldn't pull anything out, mm-hmm. right? And I really wanted it to have that kind of density to it where everything really did matter to the story. And if you pulled something out, something else would 
something else would move the wrong direction, you know, like a, like pulling a thread out of a, out of a blanket. I've been speaking with Justin Cronin. His new novel is The Passage. Thank you for joining me, Justin. Well, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.